This is Yosemite Land, the Capital Public Radio podcast, where we look at how Yosemite National Park is changing and explore its future. I'm your host, Ezra David Romero. So far, we've explored Yosemite Valley a lot, and for good reason. That's where around 95% of all tourists visit. It's like an outdoor wonderland where people raft the Merced River, hike near giant waterfalls, and climb cliffs like Half Dome. It's selfie heaven, and there are literally no bad angles here. I love Yosemite Valley. In college, I took a Yosemite experience course where we camped and did a scavenger hunt across the valley. And my team won, of course, after getting bonus points for jumping into the freezing Merced River in the spring. We learned about the park's history and found out things like who's buried in Yosemite's cemetery. During that trip is when I think the park started to become more than just a pretty place. In this episode, I want to get you even more acquainted with the valley. So let's go for a ride. Before we get started, safety first. Uh, We do ask that you keep your arms and legs inside the tram at all times. We'll be riding on a green dragon. This is an open-air tram tour, which is basically a green flatbed truck led by rangers. My first tour like this was on a date about a decade ago. Uh, Stay seated while the tram is moving. We'll have a couple of stops where we stop and stay on the tram. But before we depart, I'm going to take you somewhere I visited for the first time this spring while reporting for this podcast. An often overlooked place that people call Yosemite Valley's twin sister. Welcome to Yosemite Land. Spreck, Rosecrans, and I are headed about 40 miles north of Yosemite Valley to a place that I think rivals it in beauty. Before we arrive, he plays me a song about Yosemite's twin sister, Hetch Hetchy. This is Bill Kirchin, hooray for Hetch Hetchy. Did you know there's a second Yosemite? One without all the cars. A breathtaking wonder of nature. Now drown by a reservoir. When we arrive and I see this place for the first time, I feel that same awe that I get when standing at tunnel view overlooking Yosemite Valley. Hetch Hetchy is smaller and it's lined with granite cliffs like the valley. What sets Hetch Hetchy apart is that it's full of water. On the left we see Leconte Point and then in between Leconte Point and Hetch Hetchy Dome to the its right is Wapalma Falls thundering down into the reservoir. The mountain valley was filled on purpose. A large portion of the water ends up in the taps and drains of San Francisco. Spreck is showing me the dam. So this water that's being shot out of here is all going to San Francisco, eh? Um, no, th- this water here is just being released to the river. Um, the water going to San Francisco is on an underground pipeline that you can't see. Spreck's group restore Hetch Hetchy wants the reservoir emptied and the valley returned to its natural state. The reservoir has the capacity to hold back over 360,000 acre feet of water. An acre foot is the same as a football field covered with one foot of water. I imagine these cliffs and instead of this reservoir, a, a river 300 feet below with park visitors, with wildlife, with a growing forest, and with people, but without all the trappings and infrastructure and traffic that you see in Yosemite Valley. I see it as the perhaps most prominent restoration project 
this taking place anywhere in the United States. San Francisco's held rights to the water since the early 1900s, which today supplies water to about 2.6 million Bay Area residents. The idea of damming Hetch Hetchy Valley dates back to the 1906 earthquake. The city was looking for a more reliable water source, and leaders set their sights on the Tuolumne River. John Muir tried to stop the reservoir from happening. He was a huge advocate for Hetch Hetchy. He even said that if there was no Yosemite Valley, Hetch Hetchy would hold worldwide fame. It was the first great environmental battle of the 20th century. The Sierra Club turned from a outing club into a political organization. And ever since then, people remember, remember Hetch Hetchy. 200 newspaper articles across the country ran editorials opposing building a dam in a national park. Uh, nothing like that had ever happened before. Ultimately, it took Congress to authorize the project because Hetch Hetchy is in a national park. The Raker Act of 1913 permitted the flooding of the eight-mile-long valley so long as the water was used for public interest. Sprex Group says the dam violates the state constitution requiring water to be diverted in a reasonable way. But the group has had a couple setbacks. The most recent, a judge denied their desire to overturn federal law that allowed the dam to be built in the first place. We're not asking for the dam to be taken out immediately. We recognize that San Francisco needs time to make some fixes. And once we have a ruling that it violates California law, it becomes the obligation of the Secretary of the Interior to ensure that San Francisco come into compliance with state law. As of late August, the group is in the process of asking for review by the California Supreme Court. But that isn't stopping Spreck from enjoying Hetch Hetchy's beauty. Before he heads back to his home in Berkeley, he tells me I should keep on hiking around the lake to see Wapama Falls. It's this giant waterfall that reminds me of Yosemite Falls in the valley. It's raging. Let's go across this bridge at Wapama Falls and try not to get too wet. It's so wet. Woo okay, I got really wet. Wapama Falls, baby. And beyond this trail is an area that I want to explore in the park. It's called the Grand Canyon of the Tuolumne. I've never been, but I hear it has some of the best waterfalls in all of Yosemite. So throughout this podcast, I've harped a lot on Yosemite Valley. It's a busy place with traffic that can rival the most bustling city. We talked about this in depth in episode two. It might have come across like I'm over Yosemite, but this podcast has tied me to the park even more. Recently, I thought back to when I was a little kid riding in the back seat of my parents' silver station wagon throughout the park. We called it the Silver Dragon. I watched the mountains and trees fly by and the giant cliffs towered over us. In that moment, I felt both insignificant and awestruck. I got that same feeling this summer when I rode a green dragon. That's a bus tour on a flatbed truck. Ranger Carol Lambrecht is leading the dusk tour. Good evening and welcome to Yosemite. How are you guys doing tonight? Happy to hear the enthusiasm. Carol's a great tour guide. She really enjoys this and you can hear it in her voice. I am gonna to try to balance this tour with a little geology, a little history, a dash of flora and fauna. The first time I took this tour, I was 21. I was on a date. It was very hot because it was in the middle of the day in August. 
And this tour I'm on now is taking place as the sun sets, and it feels like a relief. I'm sitting next to a family from India and two couples from England. How about you two? England. England. Scotland and England. The first thing we see on the tour is a rock I've stared at for two decades, El Capitan. Now it rises above the valley floor about 3,200 feet. As you go back to its highest point, almost 3,600 feet above the valley floor. And geologists tell us it goes below the ground as far as it goes above the ground. I'm infatuated with El Capitan, almost more than half dome. It's bold, and something about it beckons me every time I lay my eyes on it. That's why tons of rock climbers scale it, and Carol talks about that a lot on the trip. The first person to successfully climb El Capitan was a man in the 1950s named Warren Harding. He shared a, a name with a previous U.S. president and in 1958 became the first person to climb El Capitan. Today, it's one of the most popular climbing spots in the park. And as we discussed in episode three of this podcast, one person climbed it without any ropes, which is super dangerous. Darlene is just showing you a nice view over here of the cathedral rocks, the cathedral spires, looking out over this beautiful meadow. Darlene is our bus driver. And she takes us past an area that Ansel Adams made famous in a photograph. It's called Valley View. From this vantage point, you see the river, a meadow, the forest, and then Half Dome in the distance. I've stopped here a bunch. There's a sign here showing how high the Merced River flooded in 1997. Right after the flood, so many ravens materialized, right between the rodents and the open refrigerators and garbage. They were doing their own, own cleanup work. But this river rose 18 feet above normal. You can see the flood water level sign there and it came all the way back down in that 24-hour period. The flood closed parts of the valley for half a year. One of Carol's favorite memories in Yosemite was meeting the Obamas during their visit in 2016. This is one of the views they enjoyed. This is Tunnel View, and I hope you like it too because we're going to be here for 10 minutes. Tunnel View is one of the most frequently visited views in the park. When we get back on the bus, someone asks Carol a question that I've been asked countless times. Why do popular places in the park have new names? They asked me this because when Yosemite got a new concessionaire in 2016, the names changed. For example, Yosemite's historic hotel, the Iwani Hotel, is now called the Majestic Yosemite Hotel. And Curry Village is now called Half Dome Village. It turns out the previous concessionaire had trademarked the names. So when they left, Yosemite had to change everything from maps to signs. They hadn't been watching for that. It hadn't really been done before, certainly not here. And they looked into it and it wasn't actually illegal to trademark those names. For newbies to the park, the names don't have much significance. But Yosemite's public information officer, Scott Gediman, says they hold historical value. The bottom line is as the issue works its way through the legal process, we certainly have every intention of having the names restored. We feel that these names are iconic names that go with iconic places, and these places ultimately belong to the American people. Litigation over the name changes has dragged on for a couple years now. Scott says he's unsure how the lawsuit will turn out, but in the meantime, it's been a challenge for people who love the names and confusing for first-time visitors. We know people are coming here from all over the world and they're in a new place. They could be in a rental car. They're in a place they're not familiar to begin with. And then if they're seeing names in brochures or names on signs that don't coincide with names that they know, it just confuses them more. 
Back on the tour, we're wrapping around Yosemite Valley, which is surrounded by cliffs of all shapes and sizes. Glaciers came through, but they they weren't very high up on the cliff wall. Um, all these unique shapes are as a result of water and wind erosion, rock falls and rock slides. This is a baby sequoia right here closest to the road. Carol is now talking about the world's largest trees. And the fluffy dull green foliage. It's about 160 years old. As we inch towards Half Dome Village, Carol points to giant boulders on the valley floor. Anytime you see white boulders on the valley floor, you can usually look up and see a white patch amidst a gray cliff. You know, that's a more recent rock slide. When rock breaks off cliffs, it's called a rock fall, and they happen about every four days in Yosemite. And it's park geologist Greg Stock's job to monitor them. I mean, there's rarely a week that goes by that I don't get a report of a rock fall. And I don't always have to follow up on those because sometimes they're small and then they're, they're in a remote part of the park. Even with so many rock falls, there's a lot Greg says isn't understood about why and how they happen. They have ideas though, like rain seeping into cracks, widening them, and hot days expanding the rock. In 2017, eight rock falls happened in two days. The weather was warm and clear. It was prime climbing season and, and perfect conditions, so there were dozens of climbers on the cliff uh, and walking along the base. Um, and the first rock fall was uh, a few hundred cubic meters in size, a cubic meter being about the size of a washing machine. So think about four or 500 washing machines falling all at once. Six more happened over the next few hours, and a man ended up dying in the rock fall. The following day, there was a much larger rock fall. It was more than 20 times larger, and it basically happened from the same area. Um, that one was big enough that small rock fragments made it all the way to the road, and one of those rocks struck a vehicle and injured the driver. I had just driven into the park for another story when the rock slid off El Capitan that second day. When I arrived, the area was blocked off and people were covered in dust. Rock climber Alec Wright witnessed a second rock fall. We ran into the dust cloud itself and just heard some people crying for help. Couldn't see more than a few feet in front of me. The first thing I see is a man covered in blood from about head to his waist, clutching the side of his head uh, with his wife crying out for help. Alec brought him to safety and then ran back into the dust cloud. He ended up helping eight others. Later that day, I met longtime climber Bo Scally. He has an idea why the rockfall took place. It got really cold and rained this last weekend, and then through the process of it warming up this week, it's just anytime that happens, that process of cool to warm makes the rock really brittle. Does that like inhibit you guys from wanting to climb still up here? Definitely, yeah. Today, Greg creates maps of the cliffs using a technology called LiDAR. He compares the images to see how the cliffs have changed. Greg's bringing me to a part of Yosemite Valley that they've physically altered to keep people out of the way of possible rock falls. It's a camping area called Half Dome Village, formerly known as Curry Village. We're, we're off in the woods. There's lots of big boulders around. And on the ground are uh, remnants of old foundations. There's concrete and rock that form the foundations for a whole lot of wooden cabins. The cabin sat under Glacier Point, which towers 3,200 feet over Half Dome Village. They were built in the 20s and 30s, and in 2008, there was a big rockfall here. There were car-sized boulders that were rolling into Curry Village and flattening cabins. 
and uh, there fortunately were not people in the cabins at that exact moment, but they had been in there the night before. That close call started a rockfall study, and the cabins were removed in 2013. And the following year, in 2014, in the middle of the night, there was a, a washing machine-sized rock that came off the cliff, and it landed right in the middle of this now foundation. But if the cabin hadn't been closed and removed, it would have come right through the roof of a cabin in the middle of the night, with people sleeping in it, most likely. I could geek out on this topic all day, but one last thing. Greg is unsure how much climate change has to do with how often rock falls occur, but he'd like to figure that out. When I first started working here, it was believed that Half Dome was clipped in half by a glacier. Back on the Green Dragon, the tour is about to end at the Yosemite Valley Lodge. I have to tell you, you have been a dynamite audience, and I really appreciate it. So thank you so much for joining Riding this bus tour and learning from Carol about the park and its history made me feel even more connected to Yosemite. There's so much I don't know and want to continue finding out about. So many things are evolving and changing, and that's not always a bad thing. And at the end of the day, everyone should make the effort to visit Yosemite Valley and its twin sister at least once in their lives. It's totally worth it. Yosemite Land is edited by Nick Miller. Sally Schilling is our podcast producer. Our digital editor is Chris Hagen. Linnea Edmire is the executive producer. Our theme song is Arizona Moon by Blue Dot Sessions. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See photos, maps, and more stories on our website, capradio.org slash Yosemite Land. I'm your host, Ezra David Romero with Capital Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Yosemite Land.